Today, we venture into uncharted lands as we finally put Wizard on the menu. Yes, Wizard Magazine in what amounts to be an after-school special, an intervention episode, if you will. We have to talk about Wizard. Wizard Magazine came as fast as it left, but boy, did it leave a mark. It came under the auspices of, we want to celebrate comics, we want to collect comics, we want to show you how cool comics are, and then within no time at all, they were marking your comics as downgraded, lesser value. Comics were stocks and bonds to them to be traded. Some went up, many went down, and arbitrarily, decided by who? By a bunch of kids in a warehouse off the turnpike in New Jersey. Yes, the wizard age of magazine. We are so glad it's gone, but we had to discuss it and discuss it we do on an all new episode of Raw Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Raw Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. I have been making, producing, drawing, writing, publishing comic books for going on 37 years now. This podcast has chronicled my journey from seven-year-old little fan pulling them off the metal squeaky spinner racks, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, a company called Atlas Comics, which we've never covered, but it was definitely being represented when I was seven years old. And watching comics grow from where I couldn't really find anybody to talk to comic books about because they were seen as geeky or nerdy and people didn't want to be embarrassed to now your your number one seated athletes your top movie stars are either portraying or they're wearing uh, superhero gear, comic book gear. Comic books has become pop culture. It has become the mainest of mainstream, and it has been an absolute blast to watch. Yes, there was Super Friends when I was a kid. Yes, there was cartoons, but that was really the, 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 the domain of Saturday morning or after school stuff, and people just would not give it the serious nature that, of course, I, I thought it should deserve because these stories being crafted by some of the top writers and artists, authors, creators in the business, I thought were, were better than, than movies that I was seeing, than, than books I was reading. The, the, the drama of the Dark Phoenix saga, the, the rise of, of Elektra, Bullseye, Daredevil, Beta Ray Bill and Thor, Ragnarok in Thor, uh, the entirety of Jack Kirby's 101 issues of the Fantastic Four alongside Mr. Stan Lee getting the reprints when I was a kid, seeing Galactus arrive, Silver Surfer. This was the stuff of the most inspirational imaginations. And now to see them on screen with these amped up special effects. Case in point, I'm not going to talk about She-Hulk. I'm going to talk other than it came on. And, you know, I felt the inkling to go out to my boxes in my garage where I have my Bronze Age collection where I have my stuff that, that 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 I bought when I was a kid. Several, several, I mean, those are my most kind of most valued boxes because there's so many memories packed in there. But I remember the ads for She-Hulk number one. I remember, you know, 1979 and, and, and the coming of She-Hulk. It was really the last thing that Stan Lee wrote for Marvel for, for decades. He then went off full time to pursue Marvel's opportunities in television and film. And we've chronicled that. I I think that is, honestly, uh, the greatest contribution Stan made to the company was how he saw ahead of the curve. And I've I've talked on the different podcasts 
uh, going to visit him in his house in his final days and literally his final days to sit and talk with him. And I just wanted to just tell him how much I appreciated as an adult what he did as I know it as a kid because he'd write about it in the back of the comic books. He was no longer the editor-in-chief. He didn't have day-to-day operations uh, under under his purview, but he was in Los Angeles, you know, and, 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 and trying to convince studios and trying to convince networks to make Marvel superhero shows. And I benefited from it. I've talked many times about the Incredible Hulk, what a sensation it became on television. The other day on the Twitter, the, the, the spinner rack, uh, uh, the, the, there, there's a handle on Twitter called the spinner rack, and they, they list comics that come out on the, the day, like if it was August 20th, what came out on August 20th over the decades. And uh, there was a point in 1979 where there are three Hulk comics. There's a Hulk annual, a Hulk and the Hulk magazine that they had. And on it, on all of them, big stamp, Marvel's TV sensation. They wanted you to know we've got a giant hit TV show. And it was, it was like, I'm, I'm going to tell you like it, it got huge ratings and it was on Friday nights in its, in its first couple seasons. And it was must, must see TV. If you were a kid, you were in front of your TV and you were watching Bill Bixby portray David Banner. They didn't call him Bruce Banner, David Banner. And the, you were just waiting each time you know, that the metamorphosis would occur and that Lou Ferrigno would become, would, would, would uh, emerge, you know, as the Hulk and, uh, and and throw what I found out to be, you know, styrofoam rocks and lift phony cars. But it was great to your, to your, to your 11-year-old imagination. It was everything you wanted and more. So it was great. It was a great time. Stan was out there and he was pursuing it. And But before he left, he did She-Hulk. He wrote She-Hulk number one. John Buscema, one of the greatest comic book artists of all space and time. He's on my Mount Rushmore. Listen to my Mount Rushmore episode. I go into great detail why the four heads on Mount Rushmore are who they are, why they are. And uh, the great thing is that John Buscema, Stan Lee, powerhouse combination. They, they, they brought you, you know, gajillions of issues of the Avengers, the Fantastic Four. Um, you know, they had worked together on Silver Surfer. On, on, on Submariner. I mean, John Buscema was so prolific for being such an amazing, dynamic artist. And he did She-Hulk. Stan Lee wrote it. I remember buying that issue off the stand. The one that I have is not in, is not a high grade. It's probably, you know, a 7, 8, 8, 2, somewhere in that range. But it's because it's the comic that I bought off the spinner rack. I was so excited for just to, to read about Bruce Banner's cousin, and, and, and the blood transfusion and that she'd become a Hulk too. I thought she was a great visual. I thought they nailed it. I bought every single issue of She-Hulk. I love that comic. When it when it originally got canceled, the original 1970s version, I was so sad. Later on, it came back in different uh, in different incarnations. And uh, I, I've, I've always always been a huge She-Hulk fan. But, but case in point, I mean, if you would have told me when I grabbed that comic in 1979 that this is going to be a multi-million dollar production uh, with state-of-the-art, you know, Production values, CG, special effects, bringing her to life. You know, it's not just a tall woman. There was a period in the 80s that Brigitte Nielsen, who had married Stallone, we all came to know her and meet her in Rocky IV. She was Drago's wife uh, in the part of the evil Russian empire that was trying to, you know, take down our mighty boxer Rocky and then the big the big uh, battle in front of the Politburo and in Moscow. I think it was on Christmas Day. What a, what a great movie. Rocky IV was awesome, but... Brigitte Nielsen was this towering female 
and uh, powerful, striking figure. She went on, obviously, to be in Red Sonja and uh, alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then, you know, uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2, I forget what else she was in. But there was a period where you can look for them online, you can Google that she was, uh, they were trying to make She-Hulk with her. And you know that Stan Lee was behind that. And uh, and they did a photo shoot with her as green, with green hair and in the She-Hulk costume. So, I mean, that always set. He was trying to get that made with probably Canon Films or another one of the smaller film, company, the, the film companies that was looking to get, you know, different materials. But so this is the entirety of my journey. I revisit it. I give it. I, I, I kind of tell you. I mean, I can tell you I was there when Moon Knight was born, when She-Hulk was born, when Werewolf by Night was born, when Man-Thing was born, when Adam Warlock was born. I mean, and, and you're about to meet, you know, Adam Warlock. I mean, it, it inspired me to get into comics and, and, and make characters and make comics. And so this is the journey that I, that I bring to you. And, I, and, and, and as I became a, you know, creator of comics and then more importantly, a publisher of comics, I started to see comic books from the full spectrum. And one of those is something that I've been avoiding discussing up until now. But, you know, today's episode, we got to talk about Wizard. We've got to talk about Wizard. What is Wizard, some of you might ask? Well, good question, because it has been out of business for over a decade longer. Um, I'm going to read something to you. Normally, I, you know, I, I start my I start my shows. I mean, I, I, I normally I end my shows... Uh, you know, with, with, uh, I end it reading your guys very, very generous comments and reviews and, uh, always appreciate whenever you guys are able to come on and, and leave us a positive review, share your thoughts about this show. This show is powered by you guys. It is 100% powered by you, the listeners and you sharing it. And, 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 and as I've said, um, I'm pretty much done with with uh, personal appearances for for the for the time being, but all this last year when I would go out and I would meet so many of you, you were so generous in sharing with me your passion, uh, your your you know your fondness for the show, and so much so much of it is what what you would say it's the it's it's the learning, it's the learning you loved the the learning and the history and 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 the you know. The, the different receipts I bring, whether it's reading out of these old magazines. I mean, case in point, I got to be honest. <laughs> the retailer from the Comics Interview magazine, uh, that I think his name was Bruce Conklin. Uh, a couple weeks back, I shared with you his interview in Comics Interview in 1985, where he was boasting about pushing people away from comic books and how he would eat 100 issues of the new Neil Adams, Ms. Mystic. Because he didn't think it was very good and he wanted to customers to know that it was no good and that they would in fact thank him for steering him away from a product that he did not deem you know acceptable and that they will trust him more often the guy was so invested in being a tastemaker and a gatekeeper um it was such it was so distasteful to me because out here in southern california we couldn't wait to buy ms mystic number one freaking neil adams is releasing his own line of comic books and this was the first the flagship there was a backup uh, Ms. Mystic that was in an issue of Rocketeer that Dave Stevens was was producing that was a fantastic comic, or maybe it was uh, Star Slayer. It was one of those two. It was a, it was a backup feature in one of the Pacific comics, and then Ms. Mystic number one arrived, and I was floored. I don't care if it was completely drawn by Neil, if it was partially drawn by Neil, completely inked by Neil. It was it was a product of his imagination, his design, and his uh, his continuity studios, 
and I was all over it. I bought multiple issues. Neil, uh, again, a guy on my Mount Rushmore, the greatest illustrator comic books has ever seen, period, full stop. Nobody could outdraw that guy. He could draw you under the table with his eyes closed and, and an arm behind his back. Not his drawing arm, though. Come on. But this guy, this Bruce Conklin, you guys have responded. You have blown up my DMs, my mentions, my emails. You guys uh, on Facebook have, have really, that guy touched a nerve because so many of you have encountered the exact same thing. And it's sad. Some of you were giving me your very recent in the last few days, weeks, encounters with these gatekeepers at the cash register who want to tell you what to buy, why to buy it. They want to influence you. They don't want to see something they don't like succeed. That's what it really gets down to. They don't want to see something that, uh, that, that you may, that, that they don't maybe like as much as you. They don't want to see that thing succeed because then, you know, where's their power? Then where, where, I mean, again, where then is their power and influence if something that they don't like is, is, is being bought by you? So I just think, uh, um, it, it just, it just is, uh, it's just crazy. You know, the, the reaction that that sparked and I never know, I never know what was going to spark. I even, I even hesitated to bring that to you guys, but I'm like, this is too good. This guy goes off and he, he went off on artists there. Hey, there were a couple opinions, you know? that I, I shared in the, in the show that I shared as well as a 15, 16 year old. Um, he was sharing him as a mid 20 something owner of a comic store, maybe a 30 something people have told me he's retired. He's out of the game. Look, I didn't give that interview to a public, uh, a, you know, a published magazine, a, 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 a known publication. Comics interview was a big deal in the day. So I've mentioned comics interview. I'm about to talk to you about, uh, kind of a, to set the stage, talk to you about a really uh, legendary platform, a storied publication. But before that, I'm going to start with, again, I normally end with these, but I got these and I was going to read this a while back, a couple of weeks ago. I've been sitting on this, but I figured, why don't I just uh, go ahead and share this with you guys right now. Uh, this is uh, from, I'm just going to say a guy, his name is Franklin. Franklin wrote me, as on the on the review platforms and the and he says dear rob i have a i have a couple of questions that have been bugging me now for most of my life uh why this is even hard to read i'm going to tell you right now this is hard to read to you guys why did wizard magazine want so badly for me to hate you again I have a couple of, it says, Dear Rob, I have a couple of questions that have been bugging me now for most of my life. Why did Wizard Magazine want so badly for me to hate you? Was Wizard just a big old payola scam for Mr. Garib Seamus? How is Garib Seamus pronounced? Anyway, I very much need to hear this covered on an episode of Observations. I love your show. I have reappraised your work. I am so happy I have. And more importantly, recognize your role in shaping the industry. Thank you for all of this. And well, damn it, thank you for your entire career. Imagine receiving that and saying, why did Wizard Magazine want so badly for me to hate you? And, you know, I sit there and I go, well, uh, I guess the cat's out of the bag. Guess I wasn't the only one. But that is a multi-layered topic that we're going to unpeel today. Uh, as we have come to the place where we're going to, we're going to actually, you know, we, it's time we need to talk about wizard. Okay. And we will, but not before 
we discuss the storied legendary uh, publication that is the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide. Without the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, you don't get the Wizard Magazine. All I know that's important to tell you about the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide is it is that it is named after one Robert M. Overstreet. This uh, I was proud to have done the cover to the 47th edition. Uh, I drew Deadpool, Cable, Domino. It's uh, really, I, I'm looking at it right now. It's a nice, fat, hardcover book, as, as so many of them are. And, you know, I must have been reading the, you know, 7th or, or a really early edition because it's an annual, it's an annual publication. The Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide was an annual publication that I would have to pick up at my local bookstore. For me, it was Walden Books in the Anaheim Mall. And upon first discovering the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide by Mr. Robert M. Overstreet, you will open it up and you will just see it is all categories of every comic book ever published. Western comics, romance comics, army comics, golden age, silver age, at the time bronze age, which were modern age. And, and it obviously kept going. But the great thing is they would tell you what your comic books were worth. And so, you know, picking up an Overstreet comic book price guide in 1978, I was able to look up with the comics that I had bought off the spinner rack in 1975. Now, of course, just as as it always has been in the in the Overstreet price guide, you know, they have different listings. They have good, very good, fine, very fine, very fine, near mint, near mint, mint. And they give you pricings. And for instance, I open to the M's. Mickey Mouse Magazine, released in 1981. They have it listed in near mint condition. They have it listed as $10. This is how, you know, I came to discover the comic book. You're going to hear me flipping these pages. The, the I, I'm, I, I'm looking at the Overstreet... Robert Overstreet's, it's called the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide. And this is the exact same style, model, um, that was released when I was a kid. And I would have the best time. I, I, I had to save up to get my first one. And, and before I did that, I would go to the comics, uh, not the comics, store, the Walden Bookstore in my mall. And I would actively look at uh, at the pricing. I would actually... You know, I would act. I would just sit there and try and 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 look through all the categories that I possibly could, um, and 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 try and ascertain, you know, what my comic books were worth. And let me let me tell you guys, this was a total blast. This was a total blast to do. Every single issue is broken down, and so you know, you get down here and uh, hey, look at that. Um, there's an issue, number 92. It says, no Rob Liefeld. No Rob Liefeld. I did not do issue 92. Of course, I'm going to look at the New Mutants. What are you talking about? I want, I want to check. Well, they have in here New Mutants 98. Um, and, I'll, and I'll be very specific why I'm sharing this with you right now. This is this is the 2019 Overstreet Comic Book uh, Price Guide. This is not the 2022. The 2022 is out, but I am reading from the 2019, a couple years back, the one that I did the cover to. They sent me a case, so I have I have many of them. Um, it says that in near mint condition, this is a $310 book. Okay. In very fine, it is a $205 book. Okay. A, a fine copy 
No, a very fine copy will get you $95. So let's see. Uh, what, what do they got in that number 87? Oh, first appearance of cables, $180. Bucks. Um, issue 86 says Rob Liefeld begins. That's a $20 comic. Interesting, because that's that's an is issue with the Vulture. Now, what I just did, you can do with any comic. It covers every comic. It is a thick phone book style magazine. I just wanted to see what they had that li listed at. I'll tell you why. Because oftentimes, people don't, people have never ever said anything but. It's 20% off the Overstreet Guide. It's 10% off Overstreet. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it $10 over Overstreet. I've got it $10 below. All of the big dealers that you see when you go to a dealer, uh, when you go to a convention and the dealers are there, especially I'm thinking of guys like, I mean, back in the day, the, the Mile High Comics, um, right now, Harley Yee, uh, J Company Comics, some of the big retailers that have the big end caps, the big presence at, 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 at the giant shows like like uh, New York Comic Con, like, like, like San Diego Comic Con. Those guys are going to tell you that they are... Uh, they're dealing with you in some capacity off what has been established uh, from the price guide from Overstreet. 10% Overstreet, 20% Overstreet. I'm below Overstreet, I'm over Overstreet. That's, that is the industry standard. It's still here. But once upon a time in the 90s, a magazine called The Wizard Magazine crashed the up on the shores of comic books and the wizard magazine sought to make what overstreet had done annually at that point into a monthly endeavor now i have got and I, I'll, I'll flip through uh this casually flip through this november november 1st uh november 1991 was the first Wizard uh, was issue three of Wizard Magazine. September was the first issue of Wizard Magazine with that Todd McFarlane cover with Spider-Man with a wizard cap on. Uh, to their credit, they invested uh, for, for many years in some really great original art. Much all I did probably six, seven covers, posters with Wizard Magazine over the years. And I don't believe I've gotten any of that artwork back. And I don't ever remember signing an agreement with them that they could have my art. Uh, sometimes I, I'm not even sure that they compensated me for it because there's an issue right now going on with Frank Miller about with another uh, interview magazine and doing the covers for them and then them holding on to them and then finding them, you know, up for sale at an auction house and the dilemma that that is causing. So I imagine that some of this stuff is going to still just only going to be released in a private manner as, as, uh, as, as the, the disputes are going to become hot and heavy, um, as, as time goes by, uh, if, if, if some more of this stuff that I distinctly like Frank Miller, don't remember ever allowing them to keep, uh, shows up in the marketplace and, uh, these covers that 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 they had early on were great. I did a cover. Todd did a cover. Eric Larson did a cover. Jim Lee did a cover. Wolf did a cover. Mark Texiera did a cover. Dale Keown did a cover. The industry's best and brightest did a cover. In it, Wizard started out as this innocent, you know, uh, batting their big baby blues at you, you know, just saying how enthusiastic they were about comics. But really, what Wizard Comics, what Wizard Magazine is going to come to exemplify, is. Uh, 
absolute, the, the most hubris you could ever possibly imagine coming out of one organization ever. I, I, I can't imagine any single entity having more hubris uh, on, on any level than what the wizard grew into. The, uh, the craziness of all this is, like I said in the beginning, my introduction to Wizard Magazine was meeting... Let's see what he was calling himself here. Let me, let me look at the credits in. Wizard number three. What was Garib Seamus listed as? Garib Seamus. Where is their staff page? Uh, let's see. He was the publisher. Garib Seamus was the publisher. Okay. Oh, man. So many of these names. So here's the one I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of names behind besides Garib. Garib was the face of the... He, he put himself out there. I'm not going to get into specific names today. We're going to talk about some practices and some really damaging things that they uh, put forth. That They hurt comics more than any single entity I can ever possibly imagine over the period of their publication. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you how thrilled, you know, I am at their demise, but they stopped publishing years ago. And by the time they stopped publishing, they had be already become, you know, so irrelevant, uh, that it didn't really matter. And so, you know, it was kind of one of those things like when they finally published their last mag magazine, you were like, Oh, that, that they're still publishing. Um, you know, <sighs> Uh, I mean, I'm just, uh, it, it appears that somewhere in January of 2011, uh, so it's been a decade, it's been a decade, uh, that w Wizard stopped publishing. 11 years, 11 years they've been gone and good riddance to them. They were, they were a bad blight on our industry. Their, 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 uh, their influence was negligible overall because, they were forgotten as, as, as fast as they arrived. But when they arrived, uh, negligible to the point that I'm giving them an entire episode, which I, I didn't really want to do, but we're going we're gonna to really carefully go through this. And just remember, the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide is still published to this day. It is the industry standard. It is the, it is the, um, it is the industry bearer for pricing and values of all of your comic books and magazines. And it has been since I was pulling comics off the, the spinner rack and going to the bookstore and and hoping that I could save enough money over the next couple of weeks to buy, you know, the few copies of the Overstreet, uh, you know, annual book, giant phone book uh, that they had on the shelves because they'd have two or three copies. And man, I was like, there was no layaway plan at Walden Books. You know, how many more lawns would I have to, uh, you know, mow for, for, for the neighbors? How many more you know, nickels and dimes could I scrummage, you know, uh, 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 kind of pick through the the couch and the sofa pads and keep keep kind of throwing them in my piggy bank so that I'd have enough to get a overstreet price kit. Because once you go through it, you get lost. You get lost in those listings. It tells you first appearances. It tells you artists. Like I said, it, it tells me when John Byrne started drawing the X-Men, when Frank Miller started drawing Daredevil, when George Perez, you know, was dr first drawing... Avengers. I mean, it was really exciting. Final appearance of Adam Warlock. Adam Warlock dies. I mean, it was a great little manual. It would give first appearances, relevant occurrences, and then your pricing. Now, I'm going to tell you, 
we're going to uncover one of the secrets of the price guide right now. Overstreet had a motto, and they told me this. Uh, again, one of the Overstreet guys on staff at Overstreet told me this when I was doing this cover. And they said, Rob, that is still our motto. Their motto since the beginning from Robert M. Overstreet's, you know, imagining this was that your comics are going to go up. Maybe just a penny a year, maybe just a nickel a year. But their, you know, their outlook is that as the calendar turns, as the years pass, as time goes by, what you have on your shelf is going to accumulate value. It's going to accrue. So remember that when we get to the biggest sin that Wizard Magazine tried to do in their attempt to assert absolute influence. Because that's really what the grift of Wizard was about. They wanted influence, power, and, and they would stop at nothing. And they got completely, irridiculously, I mean, just ridiculously just drunk on their attempts to assert power, control, and influence. It is WonderCon, which is held in Oakland, California, up in the Bay Area in 1990. Spring of 1990, then again, I would meet Garib Seamus in the spring of 1991. We were all on the artist row, myself, Eric Larson, Jim Lee was down a ways, and he had already secured his cover from Todd because that's what he led, led with. Garib was a you know, very young looking, kind of dressed in business garb, had his glasses, has, had his button up uh, blue shirt, his slacks. He was, you know, very much businessman oriented. He'd say, hey, I want to talk to you. I'd say, okay, what's up? He's like, well, I have some opportunities. He said, we're, we're going to get into the comic book magazine game, you know, like, like comic book buyer's guide and like amazing, amazing heroes, but better. He said, but better. We're going to really reflect the fans' interests. We're going to reflect the fans' you know, favor. And, and we're going to cover the comics industry and guys like yourself and all of your buddies and your peers. And I'd love for you to be a part of it. I'd love for you to do a cover. He said, I've already got a cover from Todd McFarlane. I said, okay. And he's like, and, and Eric Larson's going to do our third issue cover. I was like, oh, okay. You know, he sounds like he had everybody on board. And back in the days, it's like, Hey, cool! Another you know another publication promoting comics. I bought all of them. I've read to you from so many of them. I've read to you from Wizard magazines. I've read to you from Amazing Heroes. I've read to you from Comics Interview. I've read to you from Comics Journal. I've read for you to, to you from the Comic Books Buyer's Guide. I mean, there is no comic book publication that I was not pursuing. And you figure, well, the cost behind that have got to be you know not as 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 much as actually. Pers- you know, producing a comic book by hiring an artist, maybe an inker, also a colorer, getting it lettered, um, editorial, it just seemed like okay, they're gonna they're gonna have a price guide. He said they're, we're we're gonna have a price guide, but and this is where it's like, but 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 it'll be more up to date. It'll be more up to date. It'll, it'll, it'll reflect faster, reflect the times. I go, huh, okay, but I was just sitting on my metal chair and drawing my sketches, my commission list while Garib gave me his pitch. upon and, 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 and now he was very coy when he came behind my table. He was down low. He, he was squatting down on his knees. I'm on my chair. And uh, I saw him leave me and then go do the same thing to another bunch of artists. He was, uh, you know, touching base, as it were. Now, spring 1991, I am about to release X-Force number 5, which is going to sell 5 million copies, and there's no looking back. Thank God... I did all of that before Wizard, literally. Like, 
I had already sold, uh, New Mutants had sold a million copies, Cable, Deadpool had already become ridiculous, giant fan favorites, toys were in the works, merchandising was happening, X-Force sold 5 million copies, Todd sold his 3 million prior, Jim did his 8, and we didn't owe anything to this Wizard magazine. They had, we didn't have to go, oh, it was because Wizard was pursuing us, Wizard was promoting us, Wizard was, you know, sharing uh, sharing us with the fans and driving business, none of that. We had achieved our success prior to the Wizard publishing. September of 1991 is after X-Men uh, number one arrives and after X-Force number one arrives. And they're just going to start getting the, the you know, everything moving. By, by mid-1992, when Image was announced, end of 1991, Wizard was still on issue four or five. They, they still weren't in the place where they could really dominate. And early on, People said they'd really gotten behind Valiant Comics. It's like they needed someone to champion. I don't know a whole lot about that other than when I started to see Wizard after the magazine was published and I'd see them at the, at the different conventions. They were always hand-in-hand, hand, uh, you know, visiting with all the Valiant people. And Valiant seemed to have a very uh, specific uh, designated... Uh, interest in, in, in being involved with them as much as possible. They were absolutely pushing lots and lots of Valiant properties. Now, I could go into all the rumors about Wizard, but then that would take nine episodes. Just two summers ago, or just as before the pandemic, actually, I went overseas, and some of the Wizard staff that used to run their conventions, one of them came up to me and said, hey, I wanted to tell you all this stuff about Wizard and started singing and just said, I wanted to share all this stuff with you and just told me some just outrageous stuff that honestly, it all fits. It all makes sense. Uh, it has to do with so much of what I had heard over the years, but I, I Wizard is gone. It's been gone. You know, at that point, it had been gone nine years. Now it's been gone 11 years. Um, I think there was an attempt to try and make it an online thing, but that failed as well. The shows have been sold. They're gone. They're, they're completely removed. Yes, I would do some of their wizard shows because they bought those shows from other really good shows. The Chicago Comic Con was a powerhouse. It was the number two Comic Con in the country when Wizard bought it. It had been you know, going toe-to-toe with San Diego for years. Again, I've, I've covered on this po- podcast how in the summer of 1985, I went to my very first Chicago Comic Con. That is seven years before the Wizard will publish. I thought giant comic conventions were the, the domain of, of San Diego. I couldn't believe how like toe-to-toe in terms of attendance, you know, professionals, publishers, Chicago Comic Con was a powerhouse. So when in the late 90s, Wizard bought them, I had already been attending Chicago each and every year. I wasn't going to stop because I had really come to enjoy getting to know all those people uh, that, that, that would gather, you know, in the Midwest. And they would pull from Wisconsin. They would pull from all, all over the state of Illinois. I mean, it, it was really the heart of the Midwest was the Chicago Comic-Con and the and Wizard knew what it was doing when it wrote the check and bought the show. Later on, they would, you know, establish shows. Some would just come and go. Some would just come and go. A, a show in St. Louis, come and go. A show in Los Angeles, come and go. They, 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 they Their bread and butter was the Chicago Comic-Con and now uh, even that's been sold. So again, Wizard doesn't really have an imprint other than me talking to you about it and that letter that I led with at the beginning here, why did Wizard want me to hate you so much? I don't know that I'll be able to give you that answer today, 
But I'm going to tell you, I watched the magazine become more just overtly craven in its desire to control and influence. Case in point, the magazine's doing very well. People are talking about it. They're excited. They, they are, in fact, doing what Garib said they were going to set out to do, reflecting comic books retail in real time. They're telling you, hey, this is hot. Hey, this is, uh, and, and what they're telling you is hot is the stuff that's selling well. It's the stuff that you, you who were buying comics were dictating to them. So they were just a reflection of everything that was going on in the comics industry. And their, their price guide was very much just cut and paste uh, of, of what you get in Overstreet. But it was, it was monthly. And the brilliance of what Garib and his family came up with was the fact that they were, that they were uh, giving you Overstreet giving Overstreet to fans who'd never heard of Overstreet because maybe they didn't go to their bookstore. Maybe they didn't know to find this giant tome at the end of every year, this, this giant annual book, this, this phone book full of data about how your books were doing year to year to year. Well, they decided we'll do that on a monthly basis. We'll give that to the fans, the consumers on a monthly basis. People who don't even know about Overstreet, they will look to us because we're going to be there each and every month giving them the information they want on the comic books that they love the most. Here's where it all turns. In the middle in 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 the in the second year of publication of Wizard, after they had been you know relentlessly getting great covers, getting some decent interviews, the interviews were always kind of their weak point. Much better interviews were available in like the comics interview magazines and stuff like that. But I'm going to tell you, and I remember when this happened, and I called up and I said, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Well, they decided they'd be the stock market. Just printing what Overstreet was printing on a monthly basis. And and yes, could they reflect faster a book that came out in July? They could you know, show you data on that in September where if it was Overstreet, you'd have to wait till every December because it came out at the end of every year to, to gather the data. And so they were giving it to you faster, but... What they started doing is basically showing you that your comic books were losing value as much as they were gaining value. And that, my friends, is the biggest crime that they put forth on the industry to a bunch of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds who were coming into the comics industry who had suddenly looked to Wizard for its guidance because Wizard was telling you that they liked Todd McFarlane as much as you did and they liked Rob Liefeld as much as you did and they liked Deadpool and Venom. And they liked Carnage, and they liked Joker, and Batman, and Sabretooth, and Lobo. They liked all of that as much as you did. But then you go to the back, and again, like I said, I was 8, 9 at the Walden's Books, looking at my Overstreet price guide, seeing how my how much my Avengers and my X-Men, especially giant size X-Men, if you went to shows, it was going up in price. Overstreet would tell you, it jumped $20 this year. I mean, whoa, a book you bought for 50 cents? Jumped a doll, jumped 20 bucks. I mean, this was good stuff. And they'd show you how to use the price rhyme. Price. Things were changing values. They would have a red bar. They would have, um, if a comic was rising in value, it had a red bar. If it had a blue bar, it's fallen, people. And if it's got a green bar, it is a new listing. Um, 
you know, the whole up and down arrows were just that, that is where I was like, what are we doing here? And I made it my business to tell them all the time, you're, you're trying to turn comic books into the stock market. And they would just smile at you with their big shit eating grins. Like, of course we are. We're going to have these kids eaten out of our hands. We're going to, we're going to control what people like based on values. Imagine having to live week to week. Has, has my comic gone up? Has my comic gone down? Overstreet did not subscribe to that. Overstreet, again, said, your comic book went up a penny, a nickel, a dime, a quarter, a buck. But it went up. The idea, the belief was what you have is worth much more year to year. It's accruing than it was the years previous. Now you got a monthly magazine that's 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 putting... Marvel relationships, Marvel characters, DC characters, image creators, image characters on their covers with posters and ads and gimmicks. And then they started giving, you know, you'd get a a bagged and bored comic book, but the grift was in the back where they'd tell you your comics went down. I mean, look right here. I've got multiple issues. Randomly grabbing, I have issue 39 of Wizard and I have issue, uh, I have... Issue 18, 20, 16, I have issue 3, I have issue 42. These later issues start telling you, the blue bar, your comics are going down. Who wants to know their comics are going Why is Why is comic book suddenly a stock now? Why do we have to worry as creators that maybe the college age wizard staffers are determining that your comic books aren't as worth aren't worth as much as they were month in month out, you know, regardless of annually. And then in the meantime, Overstreet comic book, Overstreet that the classy publication that it was would just stay the course. They didn't look at Wizard. They weren't gonna they weren't gonna acknowledge Wizard. And and thank God most of the comic book retail would only look at Overstreet because they saw this grift that Wizard had. Uh, for what it was. Now, I have been fortunate to meet a lot of my fans from that era and they loved Wizard. And and they would say, Wizard turned on you at some point. Wizard turned on, Wizard started making fun of you. Well, that that also followed. Not just me, but lots, lots of people. These guys behind the desk, they were going to the shows, they were talking to the stores, they were learning how well Wizard was doing. And so they decided, well, we're not going to reflect what people like anymore. We're going to try and steer people towards what we like. And Upon visiting the wizard offices a couple times and seeing that these were all young college-age kids, none of whom grew up with the history of comics, you know, I came in 10 years into, like, the Marvel Comics lore, 13 years into it. These guys are coming in at the 25-year mark later, and they're trying to accrue and shape your tastes. And what happened was Snark crept into the magazine, and they'd start making fun of projects. There were so many. There were so many comic book projects. Why not start taking shots at them? Why not have a cynical outlook? Why not, before something is even published, forecast that eh, this doesn't look very good? It doesn't look very good to us here at The Wizards. So, you know, I guess decide for yourself, except all those influential kids are sitting there going, wait, what? That This is coming out in two months and they're already putting stink on it? Yes, yes, they are. And they enjoyed it very much. They loved just as much as they love promoting buddies of theirs and their projects and the people who sidled up to them, who took them out to dinners and lavishly bought more ads than the other guy, they loved punishing 
all manner of different creators and titles that they didn't like, that they didn't deem as their favorites in their wherever they were. I don't know, were they in New Jersey? Were they in New York? Uh, it was off the turnpike. I visited the warehouses. I saw the operations. I always came away just terrified that this band of young Garib uh, acolytes is shaping the industry. And it was taking. It was absolutely taking. And this was something that we all discussed. Uh, guys in my studio, guys in Jim's studio, guys in Mark's studio, everybody, Mar Marvel, DC. I, I, I literally, I know that Marvel had editors and marketing people and DC, the same editors, marketing people, image, everyone who would scream on, on the daily at the coverage they were getting, the mockery, the cynicism, the putting down certain events, elevating others. And it, and it was, in, it, it, they didn't even hide the preferential treatment. And you're like, but Liefeld, you were featured. Yes, early on, I believe Wizard had good intentions. It was exactly as he sold it. Garib said, we're going to celebrate comics. We're going to, but the minute the blue color bar that your comics are going down, that foretold the doom that was to come. Like I said, I don't miss them. I'm so glad they're gone because as the years went by and their various uh, personnel became more familiar, I knew very well to stay away from them. Case in point, uh, one of the clowns that uh, worked for Wizard was assigned to cover me. I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I have to tell you this. I was doing a project. I'm going to speak from a personal level. So if I open this up to calls... <laughs> If I open this up to calls within the comics industry, like, hey, caller number one, hey, so-and-so, you want to tell yours? It, we'd be here for hours. We would literally be here for hours. This feels almost like a two-part episode. Maybe it is. You know what? At the point, where, okay, so here's the deal. I had been, uh, I had secured the writing services of one Kurt Busiek who, he had, Kurt had been around since the mid-80s. He wrote comic books for Eclipse Magazine. He wrote all manner of, uh, he, he, you know, black and white, color. Kurt was a writer who was, you know, trying to make his way into the comic book business before landing his seminal event comic book alongside superstar in the making, Alex Ross, with their really most brilliant work, which is Marvel's. Marvel's was brilliant. It was told from the perspective of the normal folks in the Marvel Universe and specifically one reporter and photographer in particular. It is a brilliant piece of work. It, it, it revisits so much of what we loved of about Marvel in the Silver Age and, 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 and brushes up against the Bronze Age. And again, it brings it from that kind of human point of view, everything that was going around a normal person uh, as they watched the world change as the Marvel Universe in their universe was dawning as the Fantastic Four came to be, as mutants were discovered, as the Avengers, you know, gathered, as Galactus emerged. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Well... Kurt had um, been open to coming on board my Youngblood title and, and, and telling the behind the scenes of Youngblood Year One. We put it out there. We advertised it. You know, it was in previews. You could get it. And then one day, the new wizard came in. And before I had gotten to it, there was a cynical blurb uh, putting it down, basically asking kind of like, why would Kurt do this? Do we really think this is going to be any good? I mean, this is what how the wizard was taking personal shots at me. I'm telling you this to entertain you. Uh, and, 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 and there are no shortage of witnesses for this. The guy who came into my office said, I've had it. These guys just dump on us all the time with all the ads we spend. Look, I did 
my term paper in high school in 1984 on payola, which was how record companies were paying for their some of their hit singles before they were hit singles to be played more than other records. It was called pay or play. It, 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 it became the payola scandal. Dick Clark was involved, American Bandstand. I mean, it, it ran deep in the music industry. Now people would just shrug and go, that's just business as usual. It did evolve into business as usual. And in the 90s, it's like Garib Seamus had read payola and the pay and play, play scams of American Bandstand in the music industry and said, hey, that, that, that there are some of these practices that I could learn and adopt and kind of, you know, p- perhaps apply. Now, I don't know if he did, but it, it smelled familiar, especially from a kid who had run, had written their, their podcast on the same. So again, I don't know anything about how they ran their business, but I do know that they were wizard, was very good at getting everybody to outspend each other under the promise that we're going to promote you. We're going to give you, you know, we're going to put your name in lights, put your project above all others. I don't know the, it's the, the ins and outs. I don't know the actual basis of their business. I want to be very careful that I'm spilling this all right now. Uh, again, the payola, uh, uh, you know, scandal that rocked the music industry, uh, in the, in the earliest days of, of, of top 40 radio, I'm not saying that they subscribed identically to that, but it, it seemed familiar. The entire practice just seemed familiar to me. And a couple of guys said, for all the ads that we buy, they, they, they just treat us like crap. And I go, I'm not, what's going on? Tell me. And so they put it in front of me and I read it and I'm like, wow, this is kind of a low blow. This is the lowest they've ever kind of gone after me. And it's a change in, it's definitely a change in, uh, approach to me because they had asked for so many covers by me, especially in the, for early years. I mean, I, I did all manner of covers for wizard and they would reach out. Hey, Rob, can we get another cover from you? Hey, can we get a guy from your studio to do another cover? And, uh, we would always, you know, uh, comply and, and, and figured it's fun. But this was around that area where they're starting to put blue bars that your books are going out down in value and that it's the stock market and you got to pay attention because you don't know what's going up and what's going down and what you're losing money on and what you're gaining money. The blue bar says your book has lost value. That was straight up bullshit. And it dictated every direction that they would pursue following, following, following that. So given this news about Youngwood Year One and this piece, I said to Eric Stevenson and to Matt Hawkins, my two editors, to join me in the room with a couple other staffers, I got Garib Seamus on speakerphone. Matt and Eric were standing nearby. I did not tell them what I was going to say. They said, please hold. They put Garib on. I said, Garib answered, hello. I said, hey, Garib, it's Rob Liefeld. He said, hey, Rob. I said, hey, how long are you going to be at the office today? And he says, uh, I, I don't know. What are you talking about? I said, no, no, no. How, how long? How long are you be in the office? He goes, I'll probably be here till 7. He goes, I said, good. My flight will land at 6 and I'll be there in time to kick your ass. <laughs> yes, uh, Matt Hawkins uh, visibly turned green. Eric Stevenson shook his head. And they're like, we're done. We're finished. You, you just threatened Garrup. I had no intention of getting on a plane. It was just kind of all off the cuff. But I then launched into, what the hell are you doing? And he acted like, I don't know what's going on. Well, why, what's it, what are you so upset about? And then we read it to him. Like, I'll look into this. Come on. 
he he at that point was looking at every single aspect of his magazine. He was still the publisher, still still very hands on. It was about a year after this that he dialed back because I was not the only one expressing my uh, displeasure at being mocked in a magazine that that I thought was celebrating comic books. But the what time are you gonna be there till I'm gonna my plane's gonna land and I'm gonna it was it was look let me tell you. It was stupid. It was stupid for me to say it. It was um, it was overly blustery, boastful, arrogant, stupid, threatening, all of that. It was dumb. And this is, again, about 30 years ago. But I feel like I'd made my point, but I knew that at that point, look, now we've given them a reason. If they're going to be horrible to us, everybody knows in extreme why they're going to be horrible to us. And yet they were already horrible to us. They were already mocking our new projects. They were already picking favorites. And... It was getting under the skin of my staff. So that was the catalyst for the... I'd love to tell you that the situation got worse. It didn't. It was already that bad. I'd love to tell you that they treated us terribly. They didn't. It was just as bad as they had been treating us the past six, nine months prior. And we were just off to the races. Well, things got really interesting when Marvel entered into their deal with myself and Jim Lee to restore their Marvel comics because Wizard had a dilemma. Oh, crap. We've been making fun of Rob, and now our big publisher that we love to blow the most because they're the market leader, they're the industry standard, is entering into a multi-million dollar deal with Rob Liefeld. Now, if you want to read about Heroes Reborn, I did a four-part in-depth uh, it's really when this podcast blew up when I just, I will read deal memos, bring you the receipts, take you down a path. I know people at Wildstorm and Extreme and at Marvel who are like, oh my gosh, I knew something was going on at the time, but I didn't know it was this. And uh, yeah, it got, it got, uh, it got crazy during that time. You should listen to those episodes. They're possibly the most eye-opening episodes because I had sat on that stuff for, for 25 years at the time, 27 years, and thought it would be a great time to share it with you guys. And uh, because the, the buildup, the behind the scenes of Heroes Reborn was way better than any of the comics you're going to get. But so at this time now, they're like, oh my gosh, uh, what are we going to do? Rob is, is, you know, we haven't been able to dent him. He signed this big deal. He and Jim are going to relaunch these giant Marvel books, which, by the way, had been tanking. Captain America, for one solid year, sat on twenty to 24,000 copies despite Marvel's best efforts. The editorial staff who had gotten, who had learned that they were dealing with me in 1994 to relaunch it in 1996 spent all of 1995 trying to get the book up and running and it failed. It did not get above, like, it didn't rise to, like, you know, a significant number. Not to the 300 plus thousand. And then what I did not know, and that's the real Really, the, the eye popper of this episode is I didn't know the exact numbers. We were given signing bonuses. We were given these extravagant budgets and pay. Jim and I had uh, when we were doing this. But I'm flying out to sign copies of Avengers number one when it launches in September of 1996. I am flying out. And, and for whatever reason, and I can't believe I did this. I wouldn't today, certainly. But things were happening so fast. I was doing a Noon signing on Wednesday at the comic store during a school year when kids are still in school, when people are still at work. Not five o'clock, not six o'clock, not after, you know, not after school. 
I agreed to do like a couple hour signing from like 12 to 2. We had about 50 people for the launch of Avengers number one. Wizard had assigned one of their clowns to cover me. He then got in a car and traveled around with me and asked me questions. And he was very negative and skeptical. And uh, everything was skewed uh, towards me being overtly defensive, which I just didn't really answer a whole lot of the questions. I just kind of barely tolerated uh, this particular clown and then suffered his existence and then parted ways. Knowing that that article was going to be... you know, reflected as crap and that my big noon on, you know, Wednesday or Friday, maybe, maybe, no, I think it was Wednesday, Wednesday in New York City, that it wasn't a line around the block like previous, you know, evening signings that I had done in New York City earlier had had produced. It was like they were given the grist to say, oh, there's a sparse crowd. Well, I didn't know at the time that my Avengers, which to this day is the best-selling Avengers of all time, the Avengers number one of Heroes Reborn is the best-selling Avengers of all time. It is covered on a, a website called Comicron. It takes Silver Age sales. It takes Bronze Age sales. It takes modern sales. And it says, and the guy who still sold the most, and he puts us at right around 400000 when you put the newsstand sales on. And those books definitely were sold in the newsstand because I have newsstand copies of Avengers as well as Captain America. And they were in two packs that you could buy in like Walmart. I mean, that book had... 400,000, yes, yes, more than when they put Spider-Man and Wolverine on the team. Yes, more than when they relaunched it with Spider-Man and Wolverine. Avengers, Heroes Reborn, outsold all the other Avengers titles. They even put more X-Men in the Avengers uh, when the Avengers film was coming out to to step alongside it. And guys, all these others that I'm telling you about had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten variants. We had one. The Avengers, number one, had one variant. It had two covers. That's it. You get 53 covers on some upcoming titles. Trust me, you're getting 53 covers on some titles that are coming your way here in the next few months. The reason I'm telling you this is they treated me as if my Avengers was an aberration when you, you the fans, just like when Wizard was starting out and they'd reflect what you wanted, they were turning, they were looking the other way. They didn't want to reflect the fact that the Heroes Reborn Avengers actually had gone from 28,000 to almost 400,000 in sales. So the article came out and it was semi exactly what I said, diminishing and disrespectful. And, you know, I don't need my ass kissed, but just reflect reality. Reflect the fact that this comic was selling in the 30,000s, low 20s, and boom, now it's selling in the high 300s, low 400,000s. That's huge. That's amazing. So later on, about a year and a half later, I was at the Oakland Comic Con. And let's call him clown number two. Clown number two sidled up to me and said, I'm, I'm surprised you're here. I'm surprised you're here. And I said, why is that? And he goes, because you're a cancer. You're a cancer of the comics industry. I said, what? He goes, well, your box office poison. Your box office poison. Your name is terrible. And I'm sitting there going, Uh, I live my existence. I pay my bills from comic books. I am one of the most successful creators in the history of comic books. When I was standing there taking this verbal kind of abuse from this Johnny nobody, Johnny clown face, uh, who's telling me that I am a cancer and I am box office poison. And uh, the retailer that I was standing next to, because this all happened in front of a major retailer. When I was done, the retailer said, hey, man, I don't know what the hell he was saying to you, but don't don't believe that stuff. And he sauntered away, and 
look, that was the attitude of the wizard. They wanted to, they wanted their magazine to reflect their taste. If they turned on you, they wanted you to know it. They wanted to punish you, to hurt you, to um, affect your, your, you know, business. My wife, God bless her. She'd pick up an app magazine and she'd say, what, what happened? When did you piss in, in their Kool-Aid? I said, Joy, it's just, it's just, they are hell-bent on asserting their point of view and, of course, having threatened Garib Seamus to fly in on a flight and meet him at his office and kick his butt uh, was, was you know, not exactly a high point for me. And I'm not telling you that this today, beating my chest, I'm telling this because, <laughs> again, I, I just see Matt Hawkins and Eric Stevenson as they were on either side of me as I was yelling into the speakerphone. And I think they were like, oh, my gosh, we're done. Well, we weren't done. And the best literally was ahead. Heroes Reborn came our way a year later. Great things happened. Um, I'm super excited about all of the comics that I created before then and after then. And now. But I'm not the only one they picked on. And what happened was I became the go-to. I can't tell you how many professionals. Rob, I, I, I know you've... Uh... You've had some experience with this. I mean, people would literally introduce themselves to me. Or I get a call. Can so-and-so call you? I know so-and-so. So-and-so wants to call you because so-and-so is super upset because Wizard is mocking him. I said, look, have him call me. How do you deal with that? I said, you shouldn't let this bother you. Do your work. Do do the work that you love. And just, just move on. Don't listen to that. Don't read that. You know, you've got to be mentally strong. It was then that I learned that I kind of had a mental toughness toughness that some of these guys didn't. And I felt bad if I could have put my mental toughness inside theirs because they were really, really disturbed by the lack of respect that was being afforded them by, you know, this, this magazine. So one way we're going to wrap up this, I, I don't know if a part two is coming soon, but I know that I have to, I have to eventually address kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of wrap this up, uh, is, uh, you know, these guys who said these things, Wizard closed its doors in 2011. And the reason it did is because its snark couldn't keep up with the internet. Once message boards, once Twitter, once Facebook, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a mystery that at the dawn of Twitter and Facebook, Wizard was done. They couldn't hold your attention anymore. You, were, you, were, you could ascertain information even faster. And then what happened is you could talk to people like me directly. I would talk directly to you. I would answer your questions. I would interact with you. And I would enjoy it. I would love it. And you got to see the real versions of all of us, not the cartoon parody versions that these people who had never, quite frankly, ever made comics put forth on us. Because let's be honest, a lot of these guys were no different than Bruce Conklin who gave that interview in 1985. They couldn't make comics. They couldn't create comics. So they wanted to dictate which comics were successful and which comics that you liked and which comics that you didn't. And man, if they didn't like something, they wanted very much for you to dislike it as well. Again, let me revisit what this started out as from a gentleman I'm just going to call Franklin. Dear Rob, I have a couple of questions that have been bugging me now for most of my life. Why did Wizard want so badly for me to hate you? Imagine receiving that. Wow, that that really was, I felt bad. I felt bad for just the entire ugly ugliness that this guy thought he wanted to address. And then, you know, admitting it affected him. And, it, and I wasn't alone. I, this isn't about Rob Liefeld's cry fest. I 
managed it, moved forward. Again, I would I wasn't gonna let Wizard chase me out of Chicago Comic Con. That was still Chicago Comic Con. So I'd show up, pay for my table, promote my books, use their platform. But as the years went by, did I did I advertise less? Yes. And and in the waning days of image, so did I mean of, of the in the waning days of Wizard, sorry, image is still going strong. In the waning days of Wizard, Marvel bought less ads, DC bought less ads. People were fed up because once you couldn't pick on certain people, because at the turn of the century, in two thousand, who retired? I did for three years. Jim Lee retired for three years after he sold Wildstorm to DC, did not reemerge until Hush was kind of, you know, behind the scenes for three years. Mark Silvestri retired. Dale Keown retired. Todd McFarlane stopped making comics. J. Scott Campbell retired. Joe Modiera retired. All your favorites retired. It cleared the way for the constipated storytelling that you got, unfortunately, with all the blah, 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 word balloon, word balloon, word balloon, word balloon, caption, 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 word balloon, word balloon, caption, caption, word balloon. It cleared the way for all that stuff. But we retired. Well, what do you do when all your favorite targets aren't around anymore? You got to pick on existing targets and they turned their snark towards the big two and the big two immediately turned it off. Well, we don't have to advertise with you at all. We don't have to have our talent cooperate with you at all. People stopped wanting to talk to Wizard. People stopped wanting to involve themselves with them because that old saying, they made their bed and now they have to lie in it, was indeed the condition they found themselves in 1999, Garib himself told me, Rob, we're the best-selling item in comics. Comics had seen a downturn for all the reasons I just told you. All of its significant talent took three years off. Everybody, I've said it before, I'll say it again. To quote Blade Runner, the, the, <laughs> the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you, you have burned so very bright, Roy. Okay, that's when the doctor, you know, tells his favorite replicant why he's going to burn out and die at a very young age, why the replicants don't age. It's one of my, it, it has sat with me since I saw it in whatever, 1982, whenever Blade Runner came out. That movie just haunted me. And that doc, that, that, that the guy who owned the corporation, you have burned so very, well, I'm going to tell you, just like a band that tours nonstop for two years, image, we burn bright and we hit we did tour buses. We we did comic stores, conventions. We made your favorite comics. We were burned out. So again, all of us, Silvestri, Keown, Madiera, Campbell, Lee, Liefeld, McFarland, we just, we vi disappeared. This corresponded with some dark days for comics. They didn't sell as much anymore. Even I, I would go to the comics store and go, who do I buy? Well, Wizard suddenly found itself without a lot to push, but which then forced them into a corner with publishers who were even more intolerant uh, the, uh, of their practices than we had been. So him boasting to me, I'm wizard is the best selling. We're outselling every comic book to which I said, so you who cover all of us and our collective works are outselling our collective works. I, you must be so proud. All the people who, you know, kill themselves to make comic books, which then you cover and in most cases mock, you're, 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 you're outselling the best-selling comic by a thousand copies and you get to say you're number one. And they did. Well, I hope that stuck again when they pulled the plug and they went out of business. Some of them actually made them their way to other publishers. Most of them made their way to DC comics and their terrible practices continued. And they, from what I gather, most of them cycled through and were no longer at Image Comics the last, at, at, I'm sorry, at DC Comics. They were no longer at DC Comics the last time I looked. One of them, one of them who had been the snarkiest and I would say the cruelest towards me was working a line 
in San Diego a couple years ago. And I just stopped myself. And I looked right at him and I said, look at you. You're doing crowd control. And I'm Rob Liefeld. Funny how that worked out, right? And that's how I felt then. That's how I felt now. They told you your comics weren't worth as much. They went into a business and they got a foothold and they had you find find favor with them. You 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 found favor with Wizard. Wizard found favor with you. You, you know, consumed that magazine. And then they told you, oh, that comic book you bought, it's not worth as much. Oh, and that com- and what was the why and who was doing the picking? That's kind of the weirdness of all of it. But uh Again, I, I started this, I did this in addressing this letter. Why did Wizard want so badly for me to hate you, Franklin wrote. Franklin, I don't know why. I, I'll never be able to tell you why. I've given you some glimpses of what I saw went down, the way I was personally treated, and, and again, over the years, how I consoled others who would then go, Rob is the guy that can tell you how he managed through because when they were disgraceful to them, and again, they were in a rock and a hard place during Heroes Reborn, and I guarantee you, that they were telling Marvel, don't do this, don't do this. But Marvel's like, no, 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 Rob, you know what? Somebody from Marvel told me just last week, Rob, you move a lot of books for us. Your name on a cover sells. Thank you. I put a lot of work into making that happen. Well, I think that superseded whatever they were trying to convince, you know, the wizard influencers of the time. Wizard wanted power, craved power, wanted you to like what they liked and to dislike what they liked. And I could not be happier that they were gone because they told you, They broke the first rule. They told you on a monthly basis. I don't know why they needed to introduce that. Your comic books are going down in price element, but they did. Because then they could, if you believe that, you'd believe anything. And for a couple of years, you did. And now they're gone and they've been gone a long time. And I couldn't be happier. And uh, like I said, by the time they were gone, they had already been gone for a lot longer time because they couldn't keep up with the speed of the internet, of Twitter, of Facebook, of what was coming with Instagram. The instantaneous access to information and people and creators that you had made them and their outlook, their attitude irrelevant. And trust me, if you were buying Wizard in those last few years, it had become a pamphlet. Absent no advertisers, absent no money to hire staff, it had become a skeleton crew. And I would dare say that the last year's worth of Wizard magazine was a pamphlet. You were now buying a pamphlet from, again, clearing his throat. And we are the best-selling comic book in comic books. The best-selling comic book in comic books is a comic book publication about comic books, is what Mr. Seamus said to me. Of which I say, rest in peace, Wizard Magazine. Um, May you never return. Now, having covered that at the end of every episode, so Franklin, I don't know that I answered your questions, but... I gave you a little bit of history there, my 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 personal viewpoint and my interactions with Wizard Magazine and all of the mini clowns that I was um, had the misfortune of meeting. So uh, what I want to share with you is, in fact, a review here that was left because, as, as I said, normally at the end of every show, I am able to share the amazing reviews that you guys leave for us on the platform. It is so, it is so important that you leave these, these reviews for us. It, it helps, it helps us stand out. It helps separate us from the pack. It really helps the platform. It helps the show. And I appreciate it. today comes from Gerald G ride King. 
best podcast ever. Five stars he gives us. He says, I've been a Rob fan since I was 13 years old, reading and drawing New Mutants during my boring math and Spanish classes in middle school. Same year one instructor caught me drawing in class and wanted me suspended for three days for drawing Spider-Man with guns and killing people. Fast forward 30 years later, I became an artist myself and recently was hired by those same people to paint a mural of Deadpool. Of course, he's referring to the fact that when I introduced Deadpool, I called him Spider-Man with guns and swords. He was actually, uh, someone wanted to suspend him for that. He says, thank you, Rob, for your years of motivation and for getting me back into comic books during the pandemic. I have learned so much since the first episode about comics, toys, and many, many origins of all of my favorite characters. You are truly a legend and now wear the crown that the great Stan Lee left for us. Much respect, Gerald G. Ride King. Now, the crown thing, I will dispute. I believe those crowns belong only to Stan and Jack himself. The sentiment is very kind. I appreciate it very much. Gerald, what I'm, the, the thing that stands out to me is that you've learned so much from this podcast that I that the stuff that I have shared and that you have um that this podcast helped you get back into the groove in the pandemic. It was born of the pandemic. I needed my own groove. Thank you guys so much for listening to our show. Thank you Gerald G Ride King for leaving that. You guys leave these reviews. I read them at the end of the show. Today we started with the beginning with that sad Note from that guy that wanted to know why, why, Mr. Liefeld, did Wizard want me to hate you so much? And I hope I covered some of that today and gave you a glimpse into uh, the craven power that the people at Wizard lusted and wanted so much. So much so to tell a comic creator, you are box office poison. Um, wishful thinking that was. I, 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 I have to say, wishful thinking that was. And I, I see that clown every so often in my head. And I just laugh and I continue doing exactly what I love, which is what I've been doing for 37 years. You can follow me, which is making comics. You can follow me on social media, on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld, Robert Liefeld on Twitter, Rob Liefeld on Instagram, blue check next to both of those names says it's really me. That account is not going to ask you to give money to some cause. The blue check will tell you it's really me, not some grifter account. I have a, Facebook page for this show. Rob observations with Rob Liefeld has a dedicated Facebook page. I also have a group called Rob Liefeld and extreme group. I want you to check that group out. Either myself or Terry Sala S A L A will click you in as the administrator. That's the reason or the way you'll know that you've found the Rob Liefeld and extreme group. Um, the membership is great. We share all manner of things because I've basically worked on every comic character from from everybody we throw down and can talk about everything there so that's what we do i am on a app an app called whatnot i am on generally twice a week i have signed comics pops toys sketch art most people who've been on have say it's like a natural extension of this podcast because it is me talking to you for sometimes up to four hours at a time because we're having such a good time and you should check me out on whatnot get the app sign up it is a phenomenal uh, new technology where you can interact in the most personal way. It's like a, it's, it's like a convention, like right through your comic screen. It is, I, th- these guys from whatnot, they're tremendous innovators. My hats go off to them. I love being on that platform. I've been on for just a few weeks, but you guys should join me. I'm Rob Liefeld on whatnot. Join me. We'll catch one of my shows. In the meantime, you guys, you know that I am always concerned with your mental, spiritual, physical, 
an emotional being and I want you to feed yourselves by reading great comics, watching fun shows, eating great food, pizza, burgers, tacos, get the fun stuff, get that comfort food out, break it out right now, get a cupcake, get, get ice cream, get cookies, get, don't eat them every day, but, but you're entitled to your cheat days or you're enjoying a great comic book or a great streaming show or a great movie alongside it. You need to chill out, get away from your nine to five, get away from the grind, get away from the responsibilities. I have those burdens too, guys. I got kids in college. I got all manner of responsibilities with, with my, with my family. And I take it really seriously, but there is a time to chill and to be fed. Our souls need to be fed and we do it with art. What did we all look to in the pandemic? We looked to art, to shows, to music, to creative endeavors. Enjoy those. You deserve it. And in doing so, unlock some inspiration somewhere. And it'll be, it'll be exciting to see what you do with that. Circle back around next time. I'll be here looking to, to hang out with you one more time. We are most definitely going to talk again real soon.